The reality is, though, if you're investing into hard assets and commodities or assets that are in another country altogether, man, the lesson here is clearly country risk, legal. If you think about it, every time that we needed to go and deal with the local operators, if you can even find one that you can trust, you have to take that minibus plane out every week, every month in order to make sure that nobody's stealing your bloody teak. Every week, you got to take that minibus plane out to make sure that when you're harvesting the teak, it's going to harvest at the right age. And if not, you got to have a team on the floor, on the ground that you trust. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risks, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest Alvin Fan. Alvin, are you ready to rock? Hell, I am. Hell all yeah. right. All right. Alvin is a CEO of OP Investment Management, one of Asia's leading hedge fund platforms focusing on emerging managers, part of the Oriental Patron Group, a financial group running assets of over 10 billion US dollars, primarily in private equity. OPIM separately partners with emerging hedge fund managers with assets collectively more than 750 million across 25 managers. Having worked in Asia since 2000, Alvin has over 15 years experience in strategy and investment management from private equity to publicly listed funds overseeing assets across Asia and Eastern Europe. He enjoys working with entrepreneurs and growing fund managers across Asia. He is forever a student of business strategy, innovation, and the pursuit of greatness. Alvin is an avid fan of tennis, personal health hacks, and video games. And Alvin is a go-to guy I always see when I go to Hong Kong to talk about health hacks, business hacks, and innovation. So Alvin, take a minute, fill in any tidbits about your life. Thanks, Andrew. I'm pretty excited to be here. Thanks for having me. And you know, congratulations on the podcast. This is a really, really great program you have here. Just a small background, I guess. Personally, I'm Canadian, born Canadian, graduate of uh, the Ivy School of Business back in London, Ontario. Came back to Asia, to Hong Kong in 2000, I think it was. Started off in technology, an IBMer for a couple of years. Everyone around me in Hong Kong were, all my friends at the time were in finance. And I thought, you know what, I really should give this investing gig a try. And, and I actually come from a family of blue-blooded bankers. I have two uncles, one uh, Uncle Vincent and Uncle Michael out there. One, the grandfather of private equity, and the other one, a, a great entrepreneur and the grandfather of mortgage-backed security and, and securitization <laughs> here in Asia. So when looking up at that generation, seeing you know, the type of success and just simply how, in, how smart they were, I thought I should give it a try. It took me a long time, took me a while, a little bit longer than some of my peers, but I ended up moving into private equity back in 2006. I did that for uh, almost five years. And in 2009 overlapping, I joined OP, Oriental Patron, looking at their publicly listed private equity portfolio. And then how I got involved with the platform is I started off representing the group 
raising proprietary capital into a fund of funds, which was investing into some of these managers on the OPIM platform. Five years ago, the CEO at the time decided to, to move and the group parachuted me in as acting CEO. And so I thought, okay, let's give it a try. So I, I hung out here for about nine months and it was a big change going from portfolio manager whom, you know, investor as a board director into actually running the business. And I thought this is really, really exciting. And being an investor looking sometimes, it's funny because I don't know if it's called business envy or productivity envy. I don't know what it is, but it's a way of looking at seeing business owners and managers actually really creating value. And being a portfolio manager, it arguably, there isn't as much value you're generating for the investees sometimes. You are because you're adding strategic capital, especially in private equity. But as an individual, as a person, I was found investees to be tremendously respectable. And so when I had the opportunity to run the shop and to build OPIM into a hedge fund platform, wow, this was the greatest sort of form, uh, the funnest way of or an opportunity to express you know, my brand and my craft. And you know, to get to this point where we're now 25 managers after only, you know, you know, less than five years, it's pretty satisfying, pretty fulfilling. Exciting. Exciting. And speaking of hacks earlier, you told me how many seconds are there in a day? I can't remember. Yeah. Yeah. So when we look at ourselves as business owners, when we look at ourselves as practitioners, as craftsmen, just simply being better versions of ourselves, we look at resources and time is the most important resource. And when I talk to my team, like, and even younger people, I tell them, look, you only have 86,400 seconds in a day. You have to decide what you're going to do today. And if you really, really sit and digest and think about that, it's not a lot of time. And we may have all the ideas in the world, which ideas itself is a deteriorating or or deteriorating asset. The most valuable asset is time. And how you spend that ammunition is incredibly important. Beautiful, beautiful. It's like a gun with ammunition. We get one bullet at a time. You better shoot it carefully. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, Tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and tell us your story, some of which we've already started to go on and talk about before this interview. Yeah, so this was back in 2007 and I was looking with the team, I was with my old shop, Acceler at the time, and we had invested in all sorts of really interesting projects like a property in Macau before it became the wild success that it is now. We were right at the tip of Taipa. There was a plot of land that overlooked Taipa. And it's if you've ever been to Macau, it's literally over the apex. And that was one of our greatest investments. And we'd also looked at uh, property investments in Berlin, in Thailand, in Japan, in Singapore, before the Asian rush came in and before the Chinese assets start to flow into region. And had very, very good success there. But we also looked at some more interesting investments like technology, listed technology in in China or a TMT sector early or mid-sized TMT players in, in China. And funnily enough, I spent a lot of time looking at distressed assets, including property or, or commercial property in Romania, in Bucharest. 
as one of the side projects out to these nether regions or these emerging markets, we also looked at Costa Rica. And Costa Rica is known for its teak. And teak is a very special wood. Forgive me, it's been a long time since this particular one. But teak is type of wood that as it matures, like many of the hardwoods, as it matures, its value increases over time at an almost exponential rate. Because in the early stages, it's not value when it's young, but it increases in value. What is it called? A inflection point. Yes, it hits an inflection point where after roughly, I think, 12 to 15 years, the wood over the course of drying, expanding, and tracting develops a very, very hard and, and resistant core, which makes it great for very, very high quality fixtures and furniture. And so the idea at the time was to look at, number one, looking at teak as a land play, buying land, and also having the assets on the land in order to generate cash flow to sustain the business, whether it be for uh, pre-production or harvesting or whatnot, as a form of self or organic yield. And then having the real bump in return at the end of, say, a 15 or 20-year period when the returns are multiple times of what the initial investment was. So going out to Costa Rica coming from Hong Kong is no easy feat. You have to take the long flight out to, I think it's Liberia. From Liberia, you have to take this, literally this tiny propeller plane out to the farmlands, right? I don't even remember the name of the airport, but it was literally out in the middle of nowhere. And if you've ever been in Hong Kong, if you ever sat in Hong Kong, what's a characteristic vehicle, a travel or public transport vehicle is the minibus which is this Rickley 16-seat van with four wheels and a juiced-up engine that goes a lot faster than it should. So imagine a minibus with propeller wings on it. That's essentially what we needed to, to take in order to get to the teak lands of Costa Rica. And Costa Rica at the time was notorious for great agriculture in other areas like pineapple and you know, the Del Monte projects were very, very profitable, were doing very, very well there. And there was a lot of teak as well. So the idea was, well, look, let's buy hectares and hectares of the teak off the plan, the same way that you would buy apartments off the plan for a slightly at a premium that includes the value of the future cash flows, generating some dividend yields from harvesting part of the teak midway to generate returns or at least maybe a liquidity event for investors. And finally, with the big payout at the end of maybe 12 years or maybe another payout at 15, another payout at 20 years, right? This would then be packaged into a type of savings product or a hard asset product that would over time, inflation adjusted, would outperform you know, an index, if you will, right? And I don't know if it's the worst investment because it really checked off all the boxes of a good investment. You had real assets underneath. It does naturally appreciate over time. Not only does it appreciate, it appreciates at an exponential rate. And finally, it's easy to understand, right? Now, there are other factors that make a good investment as well. But I remember at the time, these are the you know, a handful of the key metrics that we thought were great because one of the important parts about investing is knowing when to exit at least knowing how to distribute, right? Now, the reality is, though, if you're investing into hard assets and commodities or assets that are in another country altogether, man, the lesson here is clearly 
country risks, legal. If you think about it, every time that we needed to go and deal with the local operators, if you can even find one that you can trust, you have to take that minibus plane out every week, every month in order to make sure that nobody's stealing your bloody teak. Every week, you got to take that minibus plane out to make sure that when you're harvesting the teak, it's going to harvest at the right age or that some of them haven't died. Or if you need to put anti-parasite on it, or if you need to spray it, or you need to prune it, you got to fly that thing out. And if not, you got to have a team on the floor, on the ground that you trust. I'm not saying that you can't find people you can trust in Costa Rica. In fact, it's a very, very friendly, business-friendly environment. In fact, it's probably more business-friendly than most of the places that we've been to, such as Romania, right? Which is very, very tough from a liquidity standpoint post-2008. But Costa Rica, given its proximity to the U.S., is actually very business-friendly to uh, North American. But for Asian investors going out, it's a bloody nightmare. We don't know anything about Costa Rica. We don't know anything about the politics there or the country risks. We don't know about the ownership laws, leasehold, you know, freehold, whatever the case may be. There's what they say on paper, and then there's what you can actually exercise. And more importantly, and perhaps this is blessing in disguise, we didn't realize how hard it was to market to investors in Asia. So here we did, we put up the tariff sheet, we put up the, the pitch book, and we showed them the phenomenal returns, 3 to 5% a year, and then it goes really exponential once you hit the 12-year mark and you end up with, I don't know, you know, multiple X, 10X, or whatever it was, insane, wonderful return. And we came, brought it out to Hong Kong, and here I was, this, 20, this snotty, wide-eyed, 28-year-old, and I, I'm at lunch, and I'm testing it out with friends and family. And yeah, I show it to my two uncles, which I'm, who I mentioned earlier, and Uncle Vincent, Uncle Michael. And go, Uncle Vincent, you know, would you buy this 20-year teak project that will give you multiple times, right? You know, looks at me down his, down his whiskey glass and goes, bloody hell. How often are you going to go to Costa Rica? If I buy there, are you going to look after my plot of land for me? Are you personally going to look at the trees and count them for me? Because if not for you, who is going to do that? And who are these guys that you are partnering to do that, right? And I'm like, well, I'm stuck. I'm like, yeah, of course, you know, we're going to find trusted partners. I found a team there and they're really credible. And he goes, really? How credible are they? When was the last time you worked with these partners? Have you won money with them? Have you lost money with them? What school did they go to? How much money is in their bank account? How do you assess their motivations are aligned with yours, young man? Okay. Well, that was a nice lunch. <laughs> and so, but here's the funny thing, right? Uncle Vincent, grandfather of the private equity industry in Asia, you know, he started the first buyout fund back in the 80s now retired, saying, Alvin, this is a crazy idea. And then I had Uncle Michael, who's one of the first people to explore the idea of repackaging loans and uh, securitizing portfolios of credit and selling them to different banks across Asia, right? Mm -hmm. And he himself is a phenomenal and amazing entrepreneur. The key word here is entrepreneur. He said, Alvin, where'd I sign up? Where do I sign up, Alvin? This is a great idea. And you could see the look on Uncle Vincent's face as he turns across the table going, 
what the hell are you doing? And so this debate ensues at the, at the lunch table, right? He goes, this is clearly a stupid idea. Why would you invest in it? And he goes, Vincent, this is friends and family. Of course. That was the most profound lesson I'd ever learned about investing at that time. And there's so many layers here, Andrew. The question is, what are these lessons, right? Number one, investors are going to be demanding a level of due diligence that in some cases are nigh impossible when it comes to private equity direct investments. And you have to be prepared to not only answer these questions, but to be accountable for these questions. And he's right. Do I know these partners personally? Have I worked with them in the past? Besides getting an audited financial account from them, do I really know the health of their business and what they're capable of, right? Do they come with recommendations from reputable individuals who have done business with them? And how much due diligence do I really need to do? A tremendous amount of due diligence. And as a 26, 28-year-old, I hadn't really touched the tip of the iceberg, right? And you have guys out there who shake hands and, and build partnerships with guys that they meet in the sauna, right? It's, oh, I met this guy at the racket club. He's a good guy. You know, we're partners now. You hear that all the time in this industry. And then at the same time, I realized how difficult it is to market it for two reasons. One, the skepticism of obviously a seasoned investor. And then turning to Uncle Michael, why was he saying yes? Was he saying yes because friends and family? Was he saying yes because he trusts me? Was he saying yes because he didn't understand the investment well enough? Or maybe he did invest, understand the investment well, but he said yes, right? But in him saying yes, without asking the same questions as my Uncle Vincent, I realized that even if he did say yes, he's not making an educated yes. Mm-hmm. And that kind of got me upset in a way. And it had me self-reflective thinking, well, if I can fool one man, does that mean I can fool another? And if I'm selling a product based on fooling an individual, based on, on the fact that they don't know enough to ask, is this the type of investment I really should be selling? Is this the type of investment that I should myself be getting into, to be quite frank? Number one. Number two is friends and family. Starting a business is about friends and family. Is it though? It's not, Andrew. Starting a business means selling to bloody strangers. You can't start a business on the premise that Uncle John, Uncle Matthew, Auntie Jeanette, and Auntie Carol are going to buy your product the way that insurance businesses these days, when young guys join the insurance business, you got to sell insurance to your friends and family, right? Yep. It's got to extend beyond that, right? The product itself has to stand on its own, and it didn't. Because all of those questions about execution, about risk, about, you know, certainty, about we didn't even get into the weather risk, into the country risk and all of those other. It was simply, Alvin, how often are you going to check up on my bloody trees? How often are you going to count the goddamn trees for me? I couldn't even answer that. (laughs) So this was a really, really profound experience when I take them upon myself. And I still remember, I reflect on this when I talk to hedge fund managers today and they ask me for advice on how to run a business, because that's what investment is. It's running a business. 
Well, I think the things that I'll take away from it, in fact, I have a friend of mine, he's been talking about buying uh, rubber plantations in Thailand. And I think that there's a couple of things you highlighted a lot, but what I would add into it is the idea that there's initial due diligence and then there's a regular follow-up, particularly on an alternative asset, such as something related to agriculture. And basically, hedge fund managers are not necessarily good farmers. And good farmers are what you really need in this type of case to can prevent things from getting damage from weather and crops and all that. So the level, it makes me think of the second part. And that is that, so the first part is really that it's very hard to stay on top of these types of investments. The second part is that you really need scale for something like this. So like I said, a friend of mine is looking at buying small rubber tree plantations around Thailand. And the point is, is that managing a series of small little places that, you know, is just really hard. And that's the reason why there's a lot of industrial type of agriculture that goes on because of the efficiency in it. And so those are kind of the things that I look at. And uh, of course, we had talked about it before and you alluded to it, but there's all kinds of legal risks related to investing in land. And like who's owning it and if you are owning it or not, is it being leased? And then there's all the legal and political implications that come with that. And so that tends to be like my friend who's looking at buying rubber plantations and he's not a Thai. And so he's dealing with the fact that it would be illegal for him to own that land. So that just raises a lot of other things. So if I look at that. So let me just interject here. Okay. So like, so you want to talk about rubber plantations. In fact, one of the, the partnering teams that, you know, a friend I know who's in there, and I literally, this happened just a few years ago, the exact same thing, rubber plantations, but in Malaysia, right? They found a local partner who, and they built sort of like a, a very simple refinery plant that would cut the trees and then process them. And for some reason, the budget kept going over and it started to eat into the margins at an, a very, very alarming rate. And you can go down, do the diligence, you can count the trees, you can count the buckets, and you say, hey, you know what, things are happening here, right? But what we realized is that there was some siphoning of funds from the business. And here's the problem is that you say, okay, you find a trusted partner, you do your initial due diligence, but to your point about maintaining due diligence, number one, how do you maintain an alignment of interest with your local partner? How do you maintain an alignment of interest that will stop them from taking advantage of their fiduciary position? Yep. So either you compensate them in the right way, right? Either you compensate them, you can apply financial controls or even audit controls on them on a regular basis. But let's not forget, you are dependent on that local partner as well. So that conflict of interest is actually working against you because the trusted source of information is coming from the very guy that you're using to control the business. And it's terrifying because halfway through the process, when you're already billions of dollars in the hole, he's the only guy that you can trust. And so you either cut him off and have an asset that is not no longer, you try to work with him or you try to find a replacement. I think the important things that you need to do at, at certain points is have clear metrics. It's almost like price actions, if you will. If the budget hits a certain point and you, you see that there's no reasonable course or no good reason for it, and as well as no recourse for it, you have to cut it and yeah. you have to find a 
partner as quickly as possible, right? This reminds me of David Swenson's book about pioneering portfolio management. And he's talking about alternative investment like timber and the like. But of course, he was in a situation where he had massive, massive resources and the the funding was very long term. So let's say um, based upon what you've learned from this story and what you continue to learn in your life, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering this same fate? In this case, let's say lost time. No, my goodness, lost time, yeah. Right, that project alone took 18 months to go nowhere. I think, but at the same time, honestly, I think back to, you know, Ray Dalio's principles and how he talks about how every mistake is a golden opportunity to learn. And the value of that lesson is immeasurable. It really does pay forward. And because of that experience, when I look at private equity or I look at new deals now, I pay particular attention to execution. When I talk to hedge fund managers about starting up their own business, which is our core business, helping hedge fund managers start business, we look at execution. And not just trade execution, but execution of strategy, execution of research. A lot of these guys are coming out from bulge brackets where they have unlimited access to research. Can they execute the same? with the same consistency when starting up their own shop, when they're pulled out of the flow. And I can tell you nine out of 10 simply cannot. And they realize for the first time, a lot of their investment success back at the previous firm really was because of the phenomenal access to both information infrastructure and smart people and teams that allowed them to make decisions. Remember, you have 86,400 seconds in a day. A lot of these guys we're able to maximize most of that time while they're in a larger shop. The moment you start a new business, a hedge fund or otherwise, you've got to divide that time up between thinking about the portfolio, thinking about the PL, thinking about research, thinking about why the air conditioner is broken <laughs> and you know who's going to you know come in and fix it, right? That's another two hours out of your day. So when we talk about execution and an associated risk, it can happen in simple businesses or in complex. But we definitely pay very close attention to that. All right, listeners, write this down on your hand, on your desk, on a piece of paper. Execution. That's fantastic advice. And it comes in many different forms. Execution, as Alvin said, has been execution related to, you know, continually looking at a particular investment such as a farm of trees and its execution related to making sure the air conditioner is fixed when everybody's screaming. So execution is key. All right, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. And as we wrap up, Alvin, thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers. And what's 18 months times 86,400? Hmm. But our listeners are learning to win as a result. Do you have any parting words for our audience? It is a serial condition. Look, at the end of the day, investing is a serial condition. It's just as is being an entrepreneur. It means that you just keep going. And at some point, it will get better. Just make sure that you're alive when it does. Amen. So brothers and sisters, there you have it. Never give up. Keep going. And hopefully you'll be alive by the time the results come in. (laughs) Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our wealth. 
fellow risk takers, I'll see you on the upside.